Hi, this is Megan McHugh, and this is the podcast of Triple R Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy, and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website. Yeah, g'day. Welcome aboard the Starship Zero G, science fiction, fantasy and historical radio for episode number 1462. I am Rob Jan and I will be Jan Solo for a few weeks now. Megan is under the weather at the moment and is also on shore leave too, so wish her well in her adventures. So we are off today. A little bit sad because... We're marking the life of Scottish-born actor-musician David Keith McCallum, who was born in Glasgow on the 19th of September in 1933 and has just died on the 25th of September in New York City. Known on the television screen mostly for four starring or recurring regular main roles across several decades, including one historical show, two science fiction and fantasy shows, and one crime procedural, of which you heard the theme there at the top of the show, the uh, NCIS theme. McCallum was the son of two professional musicians, and he practised early on to become one himself. I think he was um, going with the oboe, mostly. And he also worked doing radio voices in his early teens on the BBC, as well as some stage acting, too. He was conscripted into the British Army for National Service and left as a lieutenant, became a student at the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. Now, the four main roles that he was known for, secret agent Ilya Kuryakin in The Man from UNCLE. Do I remember what that stood for? Well, sounds out as uncle, but... United Network Command for Law and Enforcement, I think. That was a, a US-American espionage television show. So, you know, it's like the uh, the James Bond era. So there were a few kicking around there. And it was like, you know, James Bond himself. And then there were some spoof send-ups, um, some movies, uh, you know, the Matt Helm ones and the uh, the Flint ones with Dean Martin and uh, uh, Leek... Ridley Coburn, was it, I think? And then the... Well, no, it wasn't actually him. We'll get back to that. Uh, and um, also, uh, you know, you had Get Smart and uh, I Spy, and they just rolled them out there. The Man from Uncle was kind of uh, in the middle between the Bond movies and the more spoof uh, sort of send-ups, but, you know, it had uh, Napoleon Solo playing, being played by Robert Vaughan and Ilya Kuryakin, the other agent, uh, played by David McCallum. So this ran from 1964 to 1968. It was a big part of that whole spy-fi thing. And they also had like a spin-off, The Girl from Uncle, which was kind of short-lived, and they did a oh, a reunion film, as was often the case in 1983. And, you know, they usually try for those just in case it's like, is there still enough nostalgia for the old show? Or maybe they'll want another season. Uh, but no, in that case. I think they also did an A-Team episode too where they both showed up. So, you know, big part of the pop culture back in the day. And in fact, 
David McKellen become this massive teen heartthrob star. He had this like um, blonde beetled haircuts, uh, you know, standing in sort of a, a cool hip contrast. And he was supposed to be like a, a, a Russian secret agent, so he was like seconded to uncle. They never made too much of, of that in terms of the uh, of the show itself because it was like um, like Shield, kind of an international thing with people from all over. Less Shield in the uh, in the comic books. So yeah, big big star, and you know, on posters everywhere. Because he was a musician himself, he got to uh, do issue a few records on the back of that. Although unusually for celebrities turned musos, he was like a muso turned celebrity in a way. And um, so he actually played instruments on these things, mostly adaptations of popular songs from the era. So I think we've uh, we've got one of those later on in the show to play. And this was so big, according to the, the PR, but this could just be press because you know how they... They spin these things out. Uh, he was getting more fan mail at MGM than anyone else, including Elvis at the time of The Man From U.N.C.L.E. So it's really big back in the day. And I, I can remember watching these Man From U.N.C.L.E. episodes. I can't remember too much of the detail of them, but you know, I remember the, uh, uh, the distinctive cigarette case radio that he had. They had all the spy-fi gadgets, um, the the sort of handgun that could turn into a rifle by adding in all these things like sights and stocks that you all screwed into them and, uh, you know, and the secret bases and the, and the special badges that you had to wear around the f- facility. Of course, it's a covert organisation. What would that be without logos? And the unfortunately named enemy organisation, Thrush. So, you know, there was like uh, chaos in Maxwell Smart Thrush there and had Spectre elsewhere in uh, the Bond movies. It was a whole thing. You have to... Be very careful when you name your secret organisations. So, yeah, very popular show, that one. And I have the uh, the theme from that, uh, The Man from UNCLE, uh, Hugh Montenegro in this particular case. Jerry Goldsmith did a lot of the music too for The Man from UNCLE as well. So off we go with that. James Coburn is the person I was thinking of in terms of the uh, uh, Man Flint movies. Composer of that did a lot of scores from television shows back then, and, you know, things like uh, movies and TV shows. Actually, I Dream of Jeannie, Second Season, Here Come the Brides, The Outcasts, uh, The Partridge Family, as well. These uh, names which may not mean anything to the <laughs> to the modern ear, or it might. You never know because people are well multi generational when it comes to their fandoms. Uh, actually, he did the um, the score for the Matt Helm film, The Ambushes, which I was mentioning before in The Wrecking Crew. That's the uh, the Dean Martin spy movies. All right, so we are talking here today on Zero G about David McCallum, the actor who has died and known very much for his man from uncle character, Ilya Kuryakin, Russian secret agent working for an international agency. Now, that was the one that I remember him most for, but you may also know him as Simon Carter in the Colditz series, you know, the uh, the one about um, uh, 
the castle that was being used as a prison camp, 1972-1974 uh, was that series. But he also appeared in The Great Escape Movie in 1963. Uh, look, don't quote me on this, but I think he was in charge of dispersal, one of the people in that. And that means that he was walking around trying to figure out ways in the prison camp, different one from the Colditz one, but uh, in the prison camp trying to disguise the fact that they were digging a tunnel. They had to get rid of the soil. So, you know, had all sorts of dodges about this, like uh, spreading it in the ceiling of one of the huts and um, <laughs> walking around with little bags in his trousers around the parade ground to, and, and letting the soil come down the legs of his trousers and then kicking it into the ground, all that sort of inventive stuff. I could be wrong there, but that's what I think he was doing in that film. Uh, now, apart from the Colditz television series, he was also playing one of the title characters in Sapphire and Steel, which was kind of a, a fantasy sci-fi series that um, ran between 1979 and 1982. So actually kind of a, a fair bit of genre in his, in his CV, in his IMDb profile. Uh, who else was in that? Was it Joanna Lumley? Yeah, I think it was actually in Sapphire and Steel. And in 2003... So a bit of a gap there. He um, was quite lucky to land the role of the NCIS medical examiner, Dr. Duck Donald Ducky Mallard, in the American TV series, which he played. He had 20 seasons of that. Um, he was there for the whole time of that series until his death. So I think he was actually the only person left behind in the series eventually, because all the other cast members had moved on. All right, there's a lot of other things that he was involved in, but, you know, I thought that I'd play you some tracks from his fan base. Now, this one's by uh, sort of a, you know, an ad hoc little group called Angela and the Fans, and it came out in 1966. It was a 45 single, and it was called Love Ya Ilya. <laughs> so it's it's pretty basic, but it kind of captures the fan base for the character and the actor back in the day. So, you know, it's like 1960s, like Beatlemania and uh, also Dalek Mania too in Britain. So this one came out, it was a, a bit of a hit uh, on pirate radio, oddly enough. And yeah, well, you know, you can hear this. I don't... <laughs> I don't attest to the quality of it, but by gosh, they're enthusiastic. And I've always thought that that's something that characterises Triple R <laughs> above everything else. Enthusiasm, fandom, gotta love it. Very archival bit of music there. Uh, if you're not surprised to hear that the title of that was Love Ya Ilya, and that was from, by Angela and the fans of the character Ilya Kuryakin, the Russian spy from uh, The Man from Uncle. Not the reboot, not the reboot one, but um, the original television series back in the 1960s. Always seemed to me a strange sort of thing to, to reboot that concept in a motion picture in the second decade of, well, second or third decade, no, hang on, one, two, yeah, second decade of the 21st century. Um, perhaps like a little bit like the wild, wild, wild west, you know, bringing that back. I think 
who remembers these shows? Oh, I kind of do. <laughs> but, you know, so it's a bit of a tribute today to David McCallum, who has passed away, the actor and artist and writer and um, also uh, a musician in his own right too. So other things in his resume. A little bit of an Australian connection. Um, he was in a production of Run For Your Wife in 1987 and 88, which toured Australia. And in that cast, there was also Eric Sykes, the comedian, and uh, Katie Manning from Doctor Who. She played one of the companions, Joe Grant, mostly for the third Doctor, but also appearing in uh, other seasons of the show later on. He was also in a film called Robbery Under Arms, which you may know is based on the novel by um, Thomas Alexander Brown. Uh, that was a, a uh, historical crime film directed by Jack Lee. It had Peter Finch in it. And David Callum played a character called uh, Jim. Um, he and his brother in the story fell under the influence of the infamous bush ranger captain starlight and things went wrong for them thereafter uh, in that movie also was jill ireland who was um, playing a character called jean and she had married um, david mccallum in 1957 they met working on a film called the hell drivers uh, which one of was one of sean connery's early ones too i think uh, then they were together in episodes of The Man from Uncle, five episodes at least. So, you know, keeping it all in the family there. Uh, she eventually became not his wife, but went on to continue having a, a great career in television and so on. She was in that Star Trek episode. Um, oh, I can't remember the episode title now. Too many years under the uh, under the helm in that one, but. Um, not the Matt Helm, but she was uh, a character on a planet where Mr. Spock was influenced by plant spores and become rather human in his emotional reactions to the Jill Ireland's character in that. Uh, later on, David McCallum married Catherine Carpenter and they had, all together had five children. Now... Uh, this is a little bit of a tribute to David McKellen today on Zero G. He, the actor, also played Judas Iscariot in the movie The Greatest Story Ever Told, one of those biblical epics in 1965. You know, one of those films are always playing at Easter. And was also in the Kidnap series in 1978. Now, look, he appeared in everything in that era. Uh, Murder, She Wrote, uh, Matlock, Perry Mason, Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and Law and Order. He had a lot of these crime procedurals running around in his, uh, his uh, IMDb profile. Now, he had a lot more other science fiction credits too. Now, in 1975, he was um, the title character, and he did make an appearance, in a show called The Invisible Man. It wasn't a, a very long-lived science fiction show, but, you know, there you go. Uh, he was also in season one of Sequest DSV, that's Deep Sea Vessel, uh, where he was um, playing a uh, policeman at a underwater mining camp off the coast of Australia at the Great Barrier Reef. So more of an Australian connection there. But he was also... a, a a scientist in Around the World Under the Sea, which was a sort of a, a relatively low-budget um, 
submersible science fiction show. Uh, did some horror, including She Waits and Night of the... I get this right? The Lepus. Not the Lupus, the Lepus, because it was a rabbit science fiction horror movie. Giant rabbits. I think DeForest Kelly was in that too from Star Trek, uh, Bones McCoy. Uh, also in The Watcher and in the Batman animated series, movies, that is. He played uh, Alfred Pennyworth in some of those ones, the voice of Alfred at least. And also Merlin, the voice of him in uh, Batman Brave and the Bold and other voice acting roles in Ben 10, for example. Probably the one that certain sorts of science fiction fans remember him most for uh, is The Sixth Finger in a 1960s Outer Limits episode. Now, Outer Limits was kind of like the Twilight Zone, but with more monsters. It was more monster-based each week. And also the form of Things Unknown, which is one that people don't actually remember as much as the sixth finger, where he actually does have an extra finger on his hands because he's like, you know, big-brained, sort of highly advanced... Well, you know, watch watch the episode, The Sixth Finger. He also appeared later on in Joe Michael Straczynski's... Uh, post-apocalyptic television series Jeremiah, as well as being uh, uh, a doctor in a Babylon 5 episode called Infection. All right, so McCallum had a a hugely diverse career. Apart from the the acting, he was also doing uh, musical uh, work in terms of putting out records, you know, because, you know, you can do... You can parlay your... uh, celebrity status in these things into becoming a celebrity singer or a musician or whatever. Usually it's a singer. You know, we know so many actors from this era who went off and did records one sort of another. Now, in this case, this is actually one that he did called The Edge. Now, there was uh, a bunch of albums that he put out. You know, it's like uh, uh, music about me, uh, music a part of me and music a bit more of me. So he did these things on the... Zonophone label. So he actually put these together himself. But in terms of uh, the era, they're like kind of easy listening, covering sorts of things. But this one was one of his, it was The Edge. And I think this was also used late, many years later in uh, Baby Driver. It was one of the tracks in that. So th- here's the, um, the actor as musician. And you would often see him actually playing musical instruments in bands and stuff in some of the uh, the television shows that he was in, you know, especially as a secret agent, made a, a pretty good cover. So here's David McCallum's The Edge. Yeah, Mr... <laughs> I was going to say Mr Bowie there, and you can forgive me for saying that because it's got that very cool factor from the 60s this bit of jazz sort of spy-fi elements in that. David McCallum there from one of his albums, actually a cover piece, I should say. He did um, compose that one himself, The Edge. So, you know, as uh, a star of screen, both big and small, David McCallum was a celebrity and of great note back in the day. And, you know, fan clubs... Screaming teenage fans, the whole bit, T-shirts. Uh, don't know if there was actually an action figure for Ilya Kuryakin. I don't remember any of those 
Uh, I certainly remember uh, spy cameras that could turn into little toy guns and uh, um, radios and all that sort of stuff that they span off from the Man from Uncle television show that he was a star in. But, uh, you know, I'll have to have a look about that later on. He also actually published a crime novel in 2016 called Once a Crooked Man. Uh, and it was about a, an actor trying to <laughs> stop a murder. So write what you know. <laughs> I thought that was a great idea. All right, now, this is an actor who was actually able to play musical instruments quite well, as you can tell from there. And uh, so he didn't really sing too much, but he did in a movie called Free Bites of the Apple which was a, a 1967 romantic comedy where he played uh, a, a character who was uh, sort of swanning across the European countryside uh, trying to get out of paying some taxes on some casino winnings. Uh, I may have actually seen this back in the day. I've been trying to rack my brain and, and figure out things because I remember one of the very first films I saw in a cinema was something with David McCallum in it. It could have been a Man from Uncle episode spliced together and turned into a theatrical release, which they where they were. Uh, but I can't remember one which had an apple in the title, and I can't find one on the episode guides. And this one did uh, as a movie, so it had car chases in it. So maybe I am forgiven for thinking it was a Man from Uncle movie. There was another western too, but I'm afraid the western has gone to Boot Hill in my memory. I don't know exactly which one it was. It must have been sort of like a Saturday matinee or something. But anyway, let's go on with Free Bites of the Apple. This is the opening titles. And David McCallum actually does sing in this particular offering. Again, a bit archival, so here we go. Under the tree Yeah, you can probably tell a bit of sexism in that one from the 1960s, 1967, Free Bites of the Apple. Yeah, Kiriakin, well, actually, David McCallum there in the vocals there. Sorry, it's a bit archival, but, you know, that's the way of it. Didn't record it in, over an open mic with a cassette recorder or anything like that in the 60s when it came out in 67. You know, I'm, I'm having second thoughts about how this being one of the maybe the first film that I ever saw in a cinema, um, because it doesn't sound like the sort of film that my mum would have gone to. I don't know, still a mystery. Oh, well. All right, moving on, I'd like to just say, yeah, a lot of good performances there for Mr McCallum over the year. Born in 1933 and passed away on the September 25th this year in New York City. So, yeah, we've been paying a bit of a tribute to the actor artist, writer, musician today on Zero G. Uh, no longer with us, the man from Uncle Ilya Kiriakin and also Ducky from NCIS. Close Channel D. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. All right, so I will be talking about a movie now. And I saw this on the weekend. It's called The Creator. So, yeah, I get the opportunity to say, well, I'm just going off to see The Creator. Not in a theological sense, but uh, in some respects that, that may actually be the case. Now, this is 
directed by Gareth Edwards, British filmmaker. We know him well from Monsters back in 2010, that shot on a shoestring movie, which actually established some of his uh, preference for going on location because, like, I think it cost about $5,000 or something like that. And he just took the camera and swanned off to Mexico and uh, did footage there and then came back and spent a lot of time putting the special effects in, in his, on his home computer. Uh, or whatever computer he was using at the time, uh, went on from that. So, you know, Monsters was about giant monsters who'd uh, invaded the Earth and had now crossed the border from Mexico into the United States. Uh, he did Godzilla in 2014. It was a considerable ramp-up in scale. And then Rogue One, Star Wars story Rogue One in uh, 2016. Again, you know, really making leaps and bounds there. And, you know... I just think that the movies that he's made so far have been pretty spectacular. And I've actually liked most of them. Uh, Rogue One especially is one of those great Star Wars movies that you can get, you know, when they're at the absolute top of the game. It's kind of a, a, a prequel to the Star Wars series and a sequel to the series of movies and a sequel to the Andor television series. Uh, although that's a prequel to... Ah, you know... You know you know what I mean. <laughs> You're all on top of that. All right, now he co-wrote the script for The Creator along with Chris Veitz, who's also worked on Rogue One, um, directed the Golden Compass movie, uh, uh, worked on uh, the recent Pinocchio film, uh, Twilight, New Moon, a whole bunch of, of other shows and movies. Uh, multi-talented there. So obviously knows what he's talking about uh, in terms of... Uh, the Kaiju monster genre, especially having done things like um, uh, Pinocchio in a way. Sorry, not the Kaiju, the AI monster movies. You know, the Pinocchio, the wooden um, mannequin, who, marionette who wants to be a real boy. And that's the, uh, the plot of this particular film in lots of ways. So it's set in 2065, a decade after a nuclear weapon has been detonated in Los Angeles, allegedly by a rogue US government artificial intelligence, so a bit of an own goal there, uh, shades of Terminator. The AI is subsequently banned in the Western world, but not in the new Asia Republic, uh, which seems to encompass quite a few uh, Southeast Asian nations and possibly China and, and so on. Um, so... They're not banned there, where they're still used extensively and which the US in particular is raiding in order to destroy AI bases and a particularly important human scientist whom the machines regard as their creator, or as they call it in the film, uh, the Nomata. I'm a little bit fuzzy on those plot details. I'm thinking, well, yeah, I mean... Uh, well, we'll get into that a bit later. There's a US Special Forces Sergeant, uh, Joshua Taylor... Uh, he's operating undercover in New Asia where he's been romancing the adult Numata's daughter, whose name is Maya, in an attempt to locate her father. I should mention that he, was, um, he, he lost his family in the Los Angeles blast and also his, uh, if I get this correct, the, his right, or one of his arms and one of his legs. <laughs> his other right, no, his, yeah, well, whatever. Uh, but he has had bionic replacements fitted to that. So he has kind of a, a sympathy for the AI. Maybe this was also a, a, a lead into getting him close to Maya because she's also a robotics uh, AI scientist. 
Now, of course, there are complications to this undercover mission. Um, he has developed feelings for Maya, and indeed the couple are having a baby together. Uh, he is abruptly, forcibly extracted from the mission to find the Nomata's location, leaving him to believe that Maya has been killed in a subsequent missile strike. He later on learns that she may still be alive, so this is one motivation for his quest, and he is tasked with a new assignment to locate a, a weapon that's been developed by the AIs that can destroy the Nomad platform, which is a giant American sort of space station that uh, hovers over the various countries in, um, in the new Asian Republic and can deliver devastating missile strikes and other sorts of tactical uh, interventions in the landscape and in the what's seen as the AI growing revolution. Again, a bit fuzzy on the details on some of that. They never really explain all of that. Anyway, it's this massive space station, uh, kind of like the ultimate helicarrier up there in the sky, able to just hammer places. Uh, seemingly with impunity, actually. Now, all right, um, talking about this movie further, it's got uh, John David Washington playing the sergeant. Uh, we know him as, um, well, okay, so uh, his father is uh, Denzel Washington, his mother is Pauletta. Um, he was in the, uh, the HBO comedy series Ballers in 2015, and he was also in uh, Black Klansman, Spike Lee's 2018 crime movie but he was the star of uh, Christopher Nolan's science fiction movie Tenant so you know got some chops there in the area and he actually suits this role quite well uh, he does the action adventure stuff really well and also he interfaces if I may use that term uh, exceptionally well with all of the different AI characters that they've got in the movie including Maya who's played by Gemma Chan well she's the AI scientist I should say she's not an AI um, uh, English actress uh, who we know very well from uh, Doctor Who in 2009 and Sherlock uh, and Bedlam too. Uh, also, um, what else has she been in? Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. Transformers The Last Night, so a little bit of robot action there. Uh, Raya and the Last Dragon. And in the MCU, of course, Gemma Chan portrayed Minerva in the Captain Marvel movie. That was one of the Kree soldiers who uh, was working with... Um, uh, with Veers before she became Captain Marvel, uh, and then went on to headline a Marvel movie as Cersei in The Eternals. But she was also in the AMC science fiction series Humans, where she did play an AI, uh, and, you know, so done a lot of work in this area. So she has, she's quite believable in this. Um, she doesn't appear as much as she could do in the film because of that interrupted sort of relationship that we were talking about earlier on in the, in the piece. We've also got Alison Janney playing in this. Uh, not against type because she's been doing some action-adventure stuff recently. Uh, she plays a colonel in the US Army who is sort of uh, the superior officer in the field to the sergeant. Now, she has um, an immense hatred to, for the AIs, for the artificial intelligences, because uh, she lost a, a son. Um, and she lost two sons in the, in the war against the AI. Um, she plays this uh, with grit and determination and, um, you know, it's not a different role to dozens of other uh, embittered, uh, hard-charging military types that we've seen in science fiction movies. It is unusual to see a woman playing the role, though, although perhaps not as unusual in the last 10 years or so 
as it has been in the past. Ken Watanabe is also in this, and he is a simulant, that is to say an AI robot, uh, or an android, or a humanoid, or whatever, however you or want, to, want to put it, um, uh, synthetic, and he's uh, in the New Asian Republic forces. Um, he has been, Ken Watanabe, in lots of movies similar to this, like he was in that Godzilla movie we mentioned, and uh, Transformers, uh, but also, of course, done Tokyo Vice and... Um, for one of his um, great Japanese films, Thousand Years Love. Uh, Christopher Nolan, Batman movies, he's also been in here. And he provides literally a human face to this because the, um, the AI robots actually can have humour form faces which have been donated digitally, I should say, not uh, ripped off to the humans, from the, by humans to the, uh, to the robots. Now, the breakout star of this film is Madeline Una... The Yakis, a nine-year-old little girl from San Diego. Uh, she is absolutely amazing in this. If you've seen the trailer, you'll know what role she plays. If you haven't seen the trailer, I'm not going to, I'm not going to break it here for you. But she's a very important part of the plot, and she does such a wonderful performance in this. You just think, wow, is there anywhere to go as you grow up? I just wish her well. As child actresses and actors, don't always. Uh, managed to make the transition to um, adult acting, but you know, there's many years yet. Let's not let's not jinx anything with that. So yeah, a really good cast in this one. And to be honest, that's one of the strong points I thought of the film. Uh, we'll get to some of the the others in a second. Triple ah. The sentient machine trope has very long tin legs that stretch back at least to Greek mythology where the artificial beings Talos, no, not that Talos, and Galatea caused a bit of a ruckus. Filtered through the Frankenstein story arc later, it's often skews to the monstrous. Uh, fictional rogue supercomputers, killer robots and malevolent androids have been masquerading as humans through um, the... Most of my life watching uh, movies and TV, really, and reading books, with the occasional benevolent one, but mostly still feared even then or suspected. Those good bots were, you know, always, always mistrusted. Uh, you know, Steven Spielberg slash Stanley Kubrick's AI, uh, any number of, um, uh, of nice androids from Star Trek to Next Generation to... Um, as Commander Data to uh, Crichton, the service mechanoid from Red Dwarf. You know, so many. And lots of AI movies recently, as it is becoming the flavour of the century. And, you know, it's science fiction's job to hold up a mirror to society, and so all of these things play out. And so in The Creator, a lot of those tropes, you know, uh, the machine as supplanter of the human beings, being treated pretty much like the X-Men mutants are, um, being hunted down by the humans. There's other tropes in play in this too. Um, for example, one of the things I liked about this movie was that the the US are the um, the uh, the antagonists in this, uh, doing in, uh, incursions into the New Asian Republic. Um, this reflects times in history where it has been the case, uh, and I think that that shift in the viewpoint in this makes the movie work a lot better than it might have been from the other side, as it were. And it's hard to, you know, thinking like, is Gareth Edwards t 
setting himself up to be the the first human betrayer of the of mankind to the machines? I don't know. You know, I mean, it's a strange sort of dynamic in play here, but it does work quite well for me as a as a movie. Look, there are a lot of tropes in here that are quite standard. And to be honest, it's the treatment of those tropes that makes this film stand out for me and the performances and the exceptional world building in this. Oh, and I should say they also shot this, uh, one of the filmmakers, at least um, the cinematographer, um, Greg Fraser from Australia, uh, RMIT alumni, who also worked on Rogue One and Zero Dark Thirty and Dune uh, and The Batman. They used a, uh, a prosumer Sony FX-free camera on this. Now, you know, it's like you know, 6000 or so bucks here in Australia, but it's um, it's uh, quite a low cost, believe me, for a, for a Hollywood movie camera. To, and they've t taken that all over the world. And as I was saying earlier on, it's like, you know, um, very much Gareth Edwards' style to go and shoot places rather than building a set. Now, there are digital sets in this because it's set in 2065 and the world building is quite intricate and involved and detailed. Uh, and so they'll show up to this glorious location in Thailand or uh, uh, Japan or so on and, and they'll, then they'll build these uh, digitally mammoth um, buildings that, that, that instantly tell you uh, late 21st century. There isn't much mention of global warming in this film, which is kind of weird because you'd think it would be a fairly important thing. <laughs> but nevertheless, the, the, uh, the, this low-budget sort of camera, relatively low-budget, has helped them, given you this real-world sort of view. There's a very gritty feel to a lot of the sequences. And I, I really felt like I was in, like, uh, Cambodia or Indonesia or Thailand or Nepal because there was a, an atmosphere to the thing. It's hard to describe. You have to see the film to, to see all of that. Um, it was also helped because they swapped out uh, human bodies for AI-driven robots, you know, digitally, so that worked quite well. It feels very real and, as I said, non-US-centric. And uh, th those mammoth buildings are like something out of a Sid Mead art workbook. Uh, and there was a thing that I did think that the US Army seemed to be operating across the Asian Republic with a fair degree of impunity from local military forces. They tend to send the police instead and it seems like some AI militia occasionally. And this nomad station seems to operate above New Asian Republic airspace, you know, without being interfered with, with no challenge to it. Frankly, I think that the alliance that's been working with AIs for 10 extra years would have a significant edge by then. You know, so there's not much use of drones in this apart from uh, one comic incident, which I would think would be a very much developed thing in 2065. Drone swarms, for example. Perhaps in the ban in the West has set things back there, but would it be the case in the New Asian Republic? I don't think so. Oh, and at one stage there's an anime-type super tank that appears. I know it's not being piloted by AI, but that super tank sure looks one of like one of uh, Keith Laumer's iconic science fiction bolo tanks, you know, ginormous armoured behemoth. They're not as, uh, not as good, obviously, in this film as that. And there's one point where the AIs find themselves unable to do a particular thing. So it's a necessary thing, and I wonder why they wouldn't just get their human allies to do it. Maybe they can't even bring themselves to do that. Well, that's the creator. It's a, a year film, or a I, a, as I call AIs. 
Um, it's a thoughtful film. It is a bit derivative, and you can you know you can spot a dozen other films in it, especially if you you've had many decades of watching science fiction films and reading science fiction books in it. But you know what? I judge it on its own merits, and it's a pretty good film. An unusual tone, good world building. And a few cliches thrown into it. Great score by Hans Zimmer and also great music in it too. Uh, not music, um, uh, sound effects. The sound effects for this space station every time it appears, it's very much, um, you know, it's concrete. It has its own sort of sound in the sound effects. It's a music in its own right is what I'm trying to say there. Well, okay, that's about it for Zero G for today. And until next week, close Channel D. G'day, this is Rob Jan. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Zero G, a weekly radio show exploring science fiction, fantasy and historical. Zero G is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via our Facebook page or the Triple R website.